What should be a Christian's posture during a pandemic? When governing authorities offer their edicts on health protocols and reopening that impinge on our rights, how should a Christian respond? As our work lives evolve, expectations change rapidly, and bosses become difficult, how should a Christian respond? When family patterns change and their marriage partner complains, how should a Christian respond? Interestingly, the Bible addresses situations like these, and the answer is found in something called a cruciform life, a life lived in the shape of the cross. This morning, we continue our series of messages from the book of 1 Peter, which spreads rumors of hope that went viral in the first century and changed the world. And one of the rumors Peter whispers in this letter is that Believers are chosen by God as his special possession to form a new spiritual house. We saw this last week in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. And this is the church with Jesus the cornerstone, held together by the mortar of the Holy Spirit and prayer, where spiritual sacrifices are offered to God. The architectural design of God's spiritual house is cruciform. It's cross-shaped. And the lifestyle of God's chosen people is a cruciform life. And in 1 Peter 2, verse 11 through chapter 3, verse 7, Peter calls Christian exiles to live a submissive life in the pattern of Christ's sacrifice. First, we see the purpose of a cruciform life, and it's God's glory. In 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12, it says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, Peter has an urgent message for foreigners and exiles, literally guests and temporary residents without rights or status. When Peter refers to his readers as exiles, he isn't referencing their citizenship in heaven. He's talking about their social isolation within their immediate context. These were marginalized folks, most without Roman citizenship, the targets of attacks due to their racial background or their status in society as slaves, their gender or age. Whatever their social isolation before becoming Christians, it worsened by becoming Christians. Adherence to this new sect sweeping Asia Minor and the Roman Empire had no social margin and therefore really no recourse. Their behavior had to be exemplary just to survive. The phrase, though they accuse you of doing wrong, it reveals that these new believers were being unjustly scrutinized, criticized, and polarized. Governing authorities accused Christians of treason because they worshiped Christ, not Caesar. Slaves were being mistreated by owners concerned that this new authority in their lives threatened theirs. Marriages were disrupted as husbands and wives argued over religion. Peter calls them to a lifestyle radically different from the surrounding culture, uh, a cruciform life in the pattern of the cross as as an alternative to the pagan way. The goal is living a life of good deeds that draw others to Christ. The cruciform life glorifies God because it lives out his greatest commandment. In Matthew 22, 
verses 37 through 40, Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, just as the cross Jesus carried had a vertical beam and horizontal beam, Christians live a two-directional life. Vertical, love God. Horizontal, love others. We show our love for God by abstaining from fleshly passions that block our fellowship with him, interfering with our spiritual life. In Galatians 5, the Apostle Paul lists examples of sinful desires that wage war against our souls. Things like sexual immorality or hatred, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, drunkenness, and the like. And behavior like this would leave plenty of room for these Christian converts to be criticized as hypocrites, and rightly so. And they would have had no impact because their vertical relationship with God wasn't right. We show our love for others through expressions of the Holy Spirit. Rooted in Christ, these believers could bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And these Christians had an amazing impact because, controlled by the Holy Spirit, their horizontal relationships were right. And the breathtaking growth of the early church in the second century was seeded by Christians living such good lives among unbelievers that even though they were wrongly accused, their good deeds turned others toward Christ. The cruciform life is a day-in, day-out lifestyle of love for God and others. And when the gospel is of first importance to you and Christ is formed in you, then your life takes on the shape of the cross. So the purpose of a cruciform life is God's glory. The pattern of a cruciform life is Christ's sacrifice. In 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 25... We read this. To this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus' sacrifice was both exemplary. It was a model for us to follow. It was also expiatory, uh, which means it atoned for the sins of others. Jesus' death covered our sins because he committed no sin. And because he had no sin, no weight to carry, Jesus was able to carry our sin. And by continually entrusting himself to his Father, Jesus never retaliated, and it's by his wounds that God heals us. And while nothing we can do uh, can cover sin, including uh, our own sin, we are called to absorb the sin of others as part of a cruciform life. And this is following the example of the Lord Jesus. Uh, He left us a model or a pattern to follow. 
The term translated example refers to a pattern to be traced or an outline to be filled in, like a paint-by-numbers kit or a coloring book. And the cruciform life traces the lines and then colorfully illustrates Christ's sacrifice. Peter describes this process as following in his steps, and Peter would have literally followed in Jesus' footsteps along the narrow paths of the hill country uh, in Israel through fields of grain in Galilee. But Peter knows that Jesus has a different journey in mind, the walk through the streets of Jerusalem to Golgotha when Peter was careful to keep a low profile. Matthew 27 reveals what it was like for the Lord Jesus to walk through Jerusalem. People spit in his face. They struck him with their fists. Others slapped him, took a staff, and hit him on the head again and again. <clears throat> they mocked him, hurling insults, shouting, you saved others, save yourself. Abuse came from everywhere. Even the rebels crucified with him joined in. But Jesus didn't retaliate. And Jesus was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant, despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. He bore our sins in his body to break the power of sin in our lives so that we could live a new life in the pattern of his. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 say, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. A Korean pastor, Yang Wan-sun, reflects the pattern of a cruciform life. The year was 1948. The place was the town of Sunchan near the 38th parallel. A band of communists had taken control of the town for a brief period and had executed Pastor Sun's two older boys, Matthew and John. They died as martyrs, calling on their persecutors to have faith in Christ. And when the communists were driven out, Chai Sun, a young man of the village, was identified as the one who had fired the murderous shots. His execution was ordered. Pastor Sun requested, however, that the charges be dropped and that Chai Sun be released into his custody for adoption. He became the son of the pastor and a believer and receiver of the grace of Jesus Christ. The pastor son, Pastor Sun prayed this, and I thank God that he has given me the love to seek to convert and to adopt as my son, the enemy who killed my dear boys. Now that is Pastor Yang Wan-sun's story of following Jesus's example. While ours may not be as dramatic, the process is the same. The process of a cruciform life is submission. In 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 15, Peter begins with his first example, uh, which is, submission to governing authorities. He says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. 
Uh, Peter begins his treatise on submission with governing, uh, toward governing authorities, um, with, with, which was a very sensitive place for him to start. It's interesting he began the argument here because the Roman Empire was a merciless machine, especially to exiles with no rights. We can only imagine the indignities they suffered and the unfairness they encountered on a daily basis. And so imagine their reaction to Peter's imperative, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Submission means literally to place oneself under with the verb expressed in the middle voice that it refers to a voluntary submission. In the middle voice, the actor and the subject of the action uh, taken are the same, both the actor and the subject. We do this to ourselves. And so the same word is used in two other places in the New Testament. James 4, 7, it says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And then also later in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders by clothing yourselves with humility. And this offers the key. Submission comes by humbling ourselves, which leads back to the example of Christ. Jesus took on human flesh, the form of a bondservant, not seeking his personal interests, but in voluntary placing himself to care for the interests of others. And Jesus took our sin into his body and nullified it so that we could respond this way. Peter says the appropriate posture to assume toward governmental authority is to voluntarily place ourselves under it. Now, the COVID-19 pandemic has created tests of submission to governmental authority. Recently, 1,200 evangelical pastors in California banded together in a class action suit to force the reopening of churches, uh, some saying that they will reopen uh, May 31st uh, with or without permission from the county. And their demand is that churches be deemed essential services. After all, if malls and liquor stores are deemed essential, well, surely churches qualify. But the fact is, schools and concerts and churches do pose higher risks of spreading the coronavirus, uh, even following the health protocols. And so is this a time for Christians to commit civil disobedience in defiance of governing authorities and demand our rights to convene? Or is this a time to place ourselves under governing authorities, trusting that God works through them for our welfare and the welfare of others? Jesus Christ had more rights than any other person ever and laid them down. Submission is the process of a cruciform life. Peter goes on in verse 16. He says, live as free people, but do, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves and show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Apparently, some of Peter's readers misunderstood their freedom in Christ, using it as a pretext to follow fleshly instincts. <clears throat> Christians live as free people, but not free from authority, uh, but free not to sin. Uh, faith frees us to form our lives in Christ's life, submitting ourselves to his will. And in a series of brief commands, Peter reveals what that is. God's will is respect for everyone, beginning with God, then the household of faith, and then even the king. 
The free people voluntarily order themselves toward others in a way that reveals life in Christ, not life in the flesh. Showing respect requires submission, which is essential to the cruciform life. Next, Peter moves to slaves. 1 Peter 2, 18 through 20, it says, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For if it is commendable, for it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you uh, receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Now, slavery was widespread in Peter's world. In the Roman Empire, there were nearly as many slaves as free people. Um, and with each Roman victory, a new shipment arrived. Slaves were acquired from all around the Mediterranean and placed where needed. Um, and thus, there were many aliens and strangers throughout the empire. Slavery provided a massive amount of cheap labor, and it was the reason the Roman Empire ran so smoothly. Some slaves were farm workers, some were city-owned, building roads and buildings and repairing aqueducts. Others were domestic, often adopted into the household they served. Others were professionals, managers of estates, physicians, teachers, and tutors. And Roman slave, slaves were bought and sold like property. Uh, to the wealthy. To the wealthy. Um, and unlike slaves in America, uh, these were not picked by color or race, but skill. And for example, a Greek scholar could be bought at a high price for his skill and become a teacher to a patrician's child. Slaves had no legal status. They were treated like property. And there were two ways for a slave to become free in ancient Rome. Raise as much money as their purchase price or by the master's decision to free them. Now, Peter's teaching on submission wasn't intended to maintain social stability somehow by supporting slavery. Now, Peter's concern was a believer's behavior when things got rough with a crook crooked master. Um, and we may apply this teaching to vocational settings today. These provide an opportunity to use Christian freedom to patiently endure unmerited abuse according to Christ's pattern. And this is the opposite of, servile, of a servile attitude. It's a decision to purposely place oneself under another's authority and serve for the Lord's sake. Submission channels the mercy we've received through Christ to others, however unworthy. And no one is worthy of mercy. It's always an act of grace. Peter states that bearing under unjust suffering is commendable. Um, he uses the term charis that we get grace from. And the idea is of extending grace received and, and therefore being pleasing to God. Then Peter adds the caveat that there is justified suffering due to our actions, which in this context refers to a lack of submission to authority. This is suffering that is our own fault. And most anyone who has worked a job has had the experience of an incompetent boss, unworthy of respect. But Peter says everyone should be respected. 
And after we've had our say about the foolishness or unfairness, we set aside our pride and place ourselves under that authority. We may feel beaten up in the process, but Jesus, the suffering servant, was literally beaten. Uh, In fact, willingly beaten. This is the pattern of a cruciform life. So Peter addresses governing authorities, addresses slavery, and now finally, marriage. In 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, he addresses the submission of husbands and wives. First, the wives. He says, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, so they're not believers, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of their lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. And for this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. So in the same way, uh, Peter begins, he's addressing uh, what marriage looks like now in this cruciform life. In some cases, wives were being converted to Christianity before their husbands in that day. um, And a Christian wife would feel special urgency to coax her husband to faith. In fact, nothing could be more urgent. It's a matter of life and death. And so we can easily envision a well-meaning wife becoming a gospel nag, uh, taking every opportunity to urge her husband to believe in Christ. With good intentions, some wives were disrupting their marriages and working against their hope that their husband would accept Christ as Savior. Well, Peter says, let your life do the talking. Walk before you talk. Uh, If a wife places her faith in Christ before her husband believes, he may be won over without talk by the way his wife lives her life and responds to him. And if a wife wins her husband without a word, a husband is saved and God is glorified. Peter encourages believing wives to focus on purity and conduct and reverence for God, not on their appearances. Focusing on the inner self, not the outer appearance, leads to a gentle and quiet spirit and a submissive attitude. And Peter's caution on outward adornment, it doesn't mean that Christian women should not dress well or make use of beauty aids, but instead of endless attention to beauty, think Kardashians, spend the time and energy on inner beauty that never fades. Ornate hairstyles were prevalent in the high society of the Roman world. And women of lesser means would use scarce resources to imitate them. These hairstyles were pretty wild. They were lofty with masses of shaped curls climbing in front and bunched braids in the back. Um, And often uh, slaves were assigned the task of assisting uh, these women in doing their hair. These hairstyles, one person said, were one of the wonders of the ancient world 
because it's amazing what they were able to do without all the hair products available today. But these things took a big bite out of the day, a time that could be redeemed for a higher purpose. A gentle and quiet spirit draws attention through godly behavior, not through appearances. A loving, prayerful wife is the greatest treasure a husband can have in life. Peter invokes Sarah as the epitome of this virtue, citing that she obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. Now, the Old Testament narratives portray Sarah as a complex figure. In fact, God instructed Abraham on two occasions to obey her. But during their sojourn to Egypt, Sarah assented to Abraham's ruse to deceive the king of Egypt and is given to him to save Abraham's life. Um, Sarah was resourceful and lived faithfully in a foreign land with a husband who wasn't always so great, uh, sometimes putting his interests before hers. But Sarah's daughter is a submissive wife who brings the best out of her husband by living a cruciform life. Now, in my first pastorate, uh, after graduating from seminary, I returned to my home church in Long Beach, California, as the pastor of singles and counseling. And before long, two women within the congregation asked to meet with me to discuss a ministry for women who were single on Sunday. Each had become Christians after marriage, and their husbands were not interested in attending, and they left, uh, and they felt uncomfortable in couples' classes. And when I took them to a, you know, to a possible classroom, they immediately said it was too small, which surprised me. I mean, our church had about a thousand people in it, but how many women were there in this position? And so we worked out the structure of the class and selected a curriculum. A Beloved Unbeliever was the name of this book by Joe Barry. It's based on this passage, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. And we promoted it in the church, and 35 women attended, and it grew from there. And it was wonderful to watch them as they encouraged each other through the ups and downs of winning their husbands to Christ without a word. Wives leading unbelieving husbands to Christ through submission, living a cruciform life with gentleness and respect. In verse 7, Peter addresses husbands. He says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder their prayers. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. There Paul exhorts husbands and wives to mutual submission. Submit to one another and thus fulfill the law of Christ. And whether the wife's submissiveness is to be matched, uh, where the wife's submissiveness is to be matched by the husband's life self-giving love. And so they're each called to submit. Uh, and to describe marriage in terms of a mutual partnership like this sounds unremarkable today, but this was a novel teaching in the first century. Women had few legal rights and were deemed things their husband could dispatch uh, if they felt so inclined. 
And the New Testament brought about a revolutionary concept of marriage between equals with obligations to each other, not just the wife to the husband. In fact, Christianity was unusually appealing to pagan women because within the Christian subculture, women enjoyed far higher status than did women in the Greco-Roman world at large. So Peter instructed husbands to be considerate toward their wives, treat them with respect, and be willing to do anything to protect and nurture them. Because Christian husbands and wives share spiritual rights and privileges as living stones being built into a spiritual house for God's service, they are together heirs of the gracious gift of life, spiritual and family life. And not caring for one's wife is a sin that hinders prayer, Peter says here. Uh, In other words, a husband must first repent of his sin and get right with his wife. Jesus had things to say about being reconciled with others before approaching the throne of grace. So finally, a cruciform life is the way to conduct a Christian life. The cruciform life is a day-in, day-out lifestyle of love for God and others. Tracing Christ's pattern by replacing ourselves, by placing ourselves under authority Uh, is the way of the cross and the way to bring glory to God. This is unsustainable without the indwelling Holy Spirit, applying God's word, interpreting our prayers, and providing the power to do it. And Christians are a peculiar people, free in slavery to God, free as followers of Christ, free to submit to others. And no one was freer than Jesus Christ, who washed Peter's feet like a domestic slave and bowed beneath the cross to bear Peter's sin. And it is Christ's example that Peter calls us to follow in all the relationships of life. May your soul be shaped by the cross of Christ, representing the life, death, and resurrected life of Jesus. And may you live in awareness of being emptied for the sake of others and bring glory to God.